Our sermon text tonight is Psalm chapter 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, thought they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are the people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather and to sing and to praise you and to worship you and to hear your word and to be challenged by your word. And we pray that you would do just that through your Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds and our hearts and stir our affections to love you and to see ourselves in light of you and to see the great glories that are ours in the gospel. And we pray these things in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, first off, uh, because I won't maybe get the chance later, happy Thanksgiving to you. So it's good to see all of you here tonight, and I hope you enjoy your time tomorrow. If you were to attend the morning service at an Anglican church, or even just use the Book of Common Prayer for the morning office, For several weeks, if you were to do either one of those things, you would grow quickly familiar with the 95th Psalm, because every single morning office contains the 95th Psalm as a central feature of the liturgy. And this has been the case for at least four centuries, but goes way back into Christian history. The question, when we think about that and we see that it's so common, is what is so essential about Psalm 95 that, that makes it necessary to repeat every morning or to repeat even every Sunday, for example. Well, that's what we'll look at. And as all the Psalms do in the traditions that centralize the Psalm, Psalm 95 has a name. And the name comes from the very first line, which is always the case. Come, let us exalt the Lord, or come, let us worship the Lord, or come, let us make much of the Lord. So if I were to summarize this passage, here's how I would summarize it. The psalm calls us to adore God so that our hearts would not be hardened in rebellion against him. The psalm calls us to adore God because it's the corrective to rebellious hearts, which is all of our tendency. Now, I may surprise you, But I actually find most talk about God in the public space or, you know, when people talk about it, say, on TV, uh, I find most talk about God cringeworthy. I think that's a good word for it, too. I, I don't always celebrate when someone invokes the word God because, after all, who knows what they mean? Which God are they talking about? I'm not sure we're talking about the same God. And often, that's my issue with it, such talk is vague, shallow, and meaningless. It's generically spiritual. 
Put another way, it has no bite. It's kind of like a dull knife, which is the last thing we want on Thanksgiving. Dull knives are a problem. But on Thanksgiving and other holidays, such talk is even more common. We say things like, thank God for our blessings. And I think the intentions are good. But the problem is it's so generic. It's so bland. It's like giving a gift with no heart. Again, as I said, it doesn't have any real substance to it. So here's what I propose. I want to look at Psalm 95. That's where we've turned tonight for instruction in thanksgiving. I want us to look at Psalm 95 and ask this question. What does it mean to give thanks? How can we sharpen our thanksgiving in a way that is consistent with our unique confession as Christians? Or to say it differently, how do Christians who believe God took on flesh to redeem humans from sin, Satan, and death give thanks tomorrow and every day thereafter? What is it about Christians and our thanksgiving that is unique would be one other way to put this. So as we look at the psalm, I'll just tell you a little bit about it before we jump into it. You'll notice it has a straightforward structure. Uh, If you look in verses 1 and 6, there's this summons to come and worship. It's the case in 1. It's the case in verse 6 as well. So come and worship. Come and adore. Come and delight in the Lord. Come and celebrate the Lord. So there's this twofold pattern of summoning us to worship. Come, let us worship the Lord. And in each case, the psalmist tells us why the Lord is worthy of our delight and our celebration, why the Lord is worthy of our worship. Notice the word for in verse 3. For the Lord is a great God. And then in verse 7 as well. For he is our God. So there's the reason for the worship in both cases. But there's also a third element as we look at the whole structure of the psalm. While we're summoned to praise and to worship, we're also warned that worship does not come naturally. In fact, we must be warned because our hearts, we're told in the psalm, can be hardened. And hardened hearts don't worship the Lord. So with that structural view, let's take a look at the passage in detail. And I'll just make three points about worship as we're going through it. So first point, notice the context, the context of worship. Look at verses one and two with me. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now, I want to read it once more, and I want to emphasize something, and you see if you catch this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Hopefully you caught it that time. The worship we are called to is not merely private, but it's also public. So Christianity is not just me alone in a closet with a Bible, that's important, but it is also public. It is worship to be shared with God's people. It's worship to be shared with people like us together here tonight or on Sunday. It is worship that we do together. We could say the same, by the way, in verses 6 and 7, where we read the very same things. Let us worship 
It's not let me or let you, it's let us do this together. And so we see time and time again this call that worship is not just a private affair, but it is a public affair. The bedrock of our shared life as the people of God is public worship. Okay, the foundation of our shared life as the people of God is what we do when we gather to sing and pray and hear scripture and hear the word proclaimed. So that's the context of worship. It's public, it's corporate. We do it together as God's people. Second, notice the reasons for worship. The reasons for worship, and there are gonna be three reasons. But the question is this, why is God worthy, this God of the Bible, remember God's just a generic term, why is Yahweh, the Lord, worthy of worship? Look at verse three with me. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. So the first reason that he is worthy of worship is that he is utterly unique. There's no possible comparison. The very best things in the universe look completely inferior before him. He's above all. He is sovereign over all. After all, he's called a great king above all gods. So he stands above everything else. That's why he's called a king. That's also the rationale behind verses 4 and 5. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. I think I mentioned this same technique on Sunday, but it's here in this psalm as well. There's this literary technique. Notice the depths, of the, the depths and the, the heights, the sea and the dry land. So these contrasts. And we do this, as I said Sunday, when we say young and old or great and small. It's a way of saying everything, the extreme ends of the spectrum, falls under the jurisdiction of God. So whether we're talking about dry land or sea, that's God's. And he lays claim to it because he is king over all things. I should also say that when we read about the, the sea and when we read about the depths, for example, in the ancient Near East, the world of the Old Testament, when we talk about the depths, we're referring to a realm where evil lurked. It was the place of chaos. It was a place to be feared. But notice these two are in the hands of the sovereign king. It's the very thing we see as the Bible opens up and we're told that God, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then in the next verse, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, putting in subjection the chaos putting in subjection all of that evil and things to be feared in the mindset of the ancient Near East. Another reason God is worthy of worship is that he is the life giver. Look with me at verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Notice how he's described our maker. We saw this before just a minute ago, but in the Christian worldview, the way we see the world, there is creator and there is creation. There's really only really two categories. God is not part of creation. He is creator. He is eternal, having no beginning, having no end, not being subject to time in any way. After all, he creates time and space. Time has no constraints on him. Space has no constraints on him. He designs all of creation and he is our maker. 
We are here because he willed it, because he desired to bring us into being with all of creation. The proper response here is to feel impossibly small. Right? That, that's the only logical response. Humans, and I have this tendency, and maybe you don't, but I think most humans are like this. Humans like to believe that we are in far more control than we actually are. But remember what Isaiah says about us. It's not a flattering metaphor, but he says it, and it is Holy Scripture. We are like grasshoppers before the living God. That's what Isaiah has to say. Now That, that may seem really concerning, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Third, third point here on why... God is worthy of worship. Despite our insignificance by comparison, the Lord is worthy of worship because he is an adopting father. He is an adopting father. So whereas we may be like grasshoppers before the holy creator and we are just part of creation, that's not where the story ends. The God of the Bible doesn't leave us to just kind of fend for ourselves. He doesn't just take his hands off. Instead, he gets actively involved and pursues relationship with his people. Look at the first part of verse 7 with me. For he is our God. He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You see, all of this is about God bringing people to be his people. As Christians, you know, we must read every part of the Bible, including the Psalms, including the entire Old Testament, in light of Christ. And what I mean by that is we're always looking for Christ. Right, so even though we're in the Old Testament, which, if you know, is prior to the New Testament realization of Christ. Now that we have the benefit of the New Testament, we always see Christ in the passage. And here we see the work of Christ beginning to unfold in this passage. God creates the world and he places mankind in that world as representatives of him. Remember, we bear his image. They are the first humans, we too, are to cultivate and care for the world. But instead, what happens is humans rebel, desiring to be gods themselves, and the image of God is distorted. And yet, in his kingly freedom, God unilaterally sets forth a plan that was determined in eternity past. Eternal God steps into time and space in the person of Jesus to redeem a people for himself. In fact, to redeem all of creation. People who had no claim to God are now called the children of God, the sheep of his pasture. People who once were not a people are now identified as the people of God. So this mighty, beautiful, untouchable, sovereign creator God has set his affections on grasshoppers. He acts to redeem his creation that has been hijacked by sin. See, in Christ's death and in his resurrection, he acts decisively to set his creation free from sin, Satan, and death. And now he's calling people out of that darkness, out of the power of sin, Satan, and death, and into light lavishing on his people grace upon grace, making known his wisdom to all of the powers and principalities and authorities in the unseen realms. That's the story of the gospel. And we see that unfolding here, even in verse 7, because as we go into the next part, we're going to see a warning. 
And that's the final point. The barrier to worship. The barrier to worship. Begin with me at the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The trip, if you read Deuteronomy, should have taken 11 days, and yet it took 40 years. Do you remember that whole story? The Lord had freed Israel from Egypt after 400 years of slavery. He leads them out of captivity. He nourishes them as a shepherd does in the wilderness, and yet they grumble. They want to go back. They desire the comforts of Egypt rather than the comforts of the Lord. They desire captivity rather than the provision of their God. Despite the work of God, they challenge his goodness. They challenge his authority. They challenge his ability. They didn't know his ways, which is what verse 10 tells us. They have not known my ways. Put another way, their understanding of the one true God was about an inch deep. It was shallow. They didn't know the Lord. They could speak generically about a God, but they didn't know God and they didn't worship God. And they don't do what the first half of the psalm calls us to do. Worship and delight in him. And because they don't, we're told that they did not enter into his rest. Now here's where this has application for us. The tendency to rebel must be vigilantly watched. Now, we, we may think this point doesn't apply to us because, after all, we're at a Thanksgiving service on a Wednesday evening, you know, right before a holiday. Surely, if anybody's the elect, it's us in this room, right? But the mistake is to think that just because we're here, we're okay. Consider the passage. Who rebelled? It was the people of Israel, the ones who had been set free from Egypt. See, it's imperative then that we recognize that we too can fall into the same error. We easily fool ourselves with ritual and tradition and religion. These things, if we pay attention though, are often substitutes for the living God himself. And we may even say tomorrow, again with good intentions perhaps, thank you God for our blessings. Or we may say, forgive us for our sins. And yet the problem with such generic phrases is there's often no reflection on God's character when we're giving him things. Other than we like the idea that he gives us stuff and our life might be going well. And there's no reflection on the meaning of the cross that secures not only our forgiveness once and for all, but it liberates us from the inescapable slavery of sin. And here's where the mistake lies. It lies in confusing the gifts and the blessings with the giver and only blessed one. See, it is the mistake of Israel. They had seen the work of God. They had enjoyed the benefits, but their hearts went astray because they desired the gifts more than the giver. The creation more than the creator. The reason I 
like this psalm for a Thanksgiving service is because this is a perennial problem of Christians in America. And we are especially prone to it at our holidays when, again, we rightly thank God for his provision. But we often do it more out of love for the gift than the giver. And that's the real challenge. Can we tweak this so that we can be robustly Christian tomorrow? And through this holiday season, and instead of focusing so much on the gifts, which are good and to be celebrated, we would see through the gifts to the giver and celebrate him. What is the corrective, we might ask? Well, the psalm tells us real thanksgiving is the heartfelt worship and delight that arises from exalting God's character and his work in the world, especially his redeeming action in Christ. This psalm is picked up by the author of Hebrews to show us that the real rest that God has prepared for his people is Christ himself. And so it calls us, just like Psalm 95 called us, the author of Hebrews calls us to come to Christ and to worship him for what he has done. So rather than generically thanking God for blessings this holiday, here's my advice. And it's just as challenging for me as it may be for you. Consider spending a few moments exalting the Lord's unparalleled character, his power, his sovereignty, his provision, his goodness. Consider his work in Christ to redeem creation from the curse of sin. And don't confuse the blessings for the real object of thanksgiving. The late theologian John Webster once said, What draws forth the movement of worship? God himself. What evokes the intensity of worship? Again, God himself. See, the object of our delight, the object of our wonder, the object of our celebration and satisfaction and adoration and worship must be God in his splendid character. And so the psalm says, come, let us worship the Lord, because there is none like him. I hope you'll join me in a responsive prayer of thanksgiving. I'll, I'll say the whole thing with you because I think that's easier. But if you'll respond in the bolded portions here, uh, we'll pray this prayer together. Great God of our lives, for all that is gracious in our lives, revealing the image of Christ, we give you thanks. For our daily food and drink, our homes and families and our friends, we give you thanks. For minds to think and hearts to love and hands to serve, we give you thanks. For health and strength to work and leisure to rest and play, we give you thanks. For all valiant seekers after truth, liberty and justice, we give you thanks. For the great mercies and promises given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord, to you, O God, be praise and glory. Amen.